0: What's up, Refination? Nation? This is Simmer with my dear friend John over here. For today's episode, we've got Dana and Phil from Flow Carbon talking about the voluntary carbon market, all the amazing work that they're doing supporting project developers on the ground, and the new centrifuge pools that they just launched, Some really interesting, cool structured finance tools on how we can get more capital to on-the-ground project developers and generate you know, a real impact towards the climate emergency. John, what are some of the things you're, you're sitting with, pondering on, taking away? Dude, I'm
1: excited. I, I've been curious about what happens with Flow Carbon for a while. They've kind of been like this big but looming force that hasn't really materialized in the space. And it's great to hear them leaning so deeply into the public consultation with um, all the different voluntary carbon market participants. And also working in the background on launching these centrifuge pools for these carbon forward contracts, and seeing material progress there that isn't limited by the decisions of the the legacy market, and that just feels really satisfying to see Refi making progress in multiple fronts. We also saw Thalo last week launch their two way bridge, and we get a, didn't get a chance to like go into the you know Flow Carbon's positioning in the market in any depth, but. Um, I'm yeah increasingly optimistic I hope that over the next six months as Phil says we'll see a kind of opening of the floodgate some specific rules of registry saying this is how you tokenize our assets and boom we've got you know a whole nother era ahead of us of liquid supply of carbon credits coming on chain and flowing off chain to maintain an efficient market Um, so yeah for those listening episode dropping in sec if you enjoyed this one drop us a review share with a friend let's get the story of regeneration out to the masses and yeah as always Zimmer great jam with you thanks for this it's always fun hanging out and here we go Dana and Phil hey good morning Dana thanks so much for jumping on I know you just got off to a long flight how you feeling this morning
2: I am refreshed ready to go it was only a 12-hour flight with three kids so no big deal (laughs)
1: <laughs> Legend, Phil. You've been on a similar adventure. What's going on, SF man? How are you feeling today?
3: I'm feeling great. Uh, got a lot of stuff going on today. Super excited.
1: Great, man. Well, seminar. Super excited to speak with you guys. Um, we know ins and outs about what y'all are up to, but for some of the people tuning in who don't know as much about Flow Carbon, um, maybe you can kick us off, Dana, just give a quick overview of what Flow Carbon is, and then we can start to unpack yeah, your kind of theory of change and the reason why you've decided to do this venture.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Flow Carbon uh, is a company that was incepted to help scale what's called the voluntary carbon market. Um which I'm assuming many of your listeners know what it is, but if they don't, it's the market that facilitates carbon reduction and removal projects um, uh, by issuing them credits that can be sold to to buyers, essentially. Um, And we think this is an essential market from a climate solution standpoint. It can deliver something like 30% of the overall solution to climate change that we all want to see, in addition to preserving and enhancing super important ecosystems um, for biodiversity, for local communities, often in the developing world, et cetera. So we think these are essential projects um, and this is the market that facilitates them. However, it's a market that has uh, not experienced the scale and growth that it could due to a bunch of systemic challenges that it has faced. And Flow Carbon was incepted to address two of those challenges specifically. One is the fact that these projects, which are oftentimes in nature, conservation, afforestation, reforestation, et cetera, they are capital intensive to get off the ground, but can take two to three years to become certified and get credits issued, which they can sell for revenue. And so we are super, um, super excited to facilitate early and efficient capital to project developers so that more projects can get done. And so that's one main area of focus for Flow Carbon. The second is the spot market in which the ultimate carbon credits are transacted. It has historically been very opaque and non-transparent, conducted over-the-counter primarily. And we think that critical to scaling the market is having transparency, price discoverability, um, and so we're committed to that as well. Now, to address these two challenges, we, uh, which is why we incepted the company, we quickly recognized that blockchain as a technology tool can be the right infrastructure layer to mm. um, to build solutions addressing both of these. And I'm sure we'll dive into what those are. And so we are a company that is leveraging blockchain tech in addition to other tech tools to address these two uh, challenge points in the voluntary carbon market
1: and is that how you got involved phil curious to hear kind of a bit about your background and how you and dana met and yeah your contribution to this space
3: yeah for sure um so i got involved in the blockchain space in around 2011 um, started tracking bitcoin and started paying attention to the space pretty um, carefully and then in around 2016 2017 Got involved in the impact blockchain space. And at the time that really was focused on the transition to proof of stake. Um, and I remember at the time being laughed out of rooms when I was starting to start a staking as a service company. Um, the people were just like, no, proof of stake is never going to be a thing, Ethereum's never gonna merge. So really excited to actually see that come true after you know, five years of sort of working in that area. Um, <laughs> really excited about that. And I in 2020, um, during what was called DeFi summer, when there was just a, a a boom of stuff going on in the DeFi space and especially around stablecoins. Um, I had just read Sacred Economics by Charles Eisenstein. And I got this idea of saying, oh, can we actually create a green stable coin? And I was working on a project at the time that was called Bitcoin Green or BitGreen, um, not to be confused with the new BitGreen that's out there today. And started thinking about what could you put inside of a green stable coin? And started really thinking about it and then I went down a rabbit hole of what kind of natural capital could come on chain and came across carbon credits, went down the deep dark rabbit hole around carbon credits and discovered that this was like the perfect asset to come on chain. And this was a great use case for blockchain because it solves so many of the fundamental problems that exist in the voluntary carbon market from day one, transparency, access, price discovery, um, additional capital sources. And then you could maybe even build a stable coin on top of that. And so it was really interesting to see that. That's sort of when I first came into the, like, discovered the Celo ecosystem um, and looked around in a bunch of places. And then about, you know, six, nine months into my rabbit hole, um, I got a call from a friend of mine who said, hey, do you know anything? You're our go-to Web3 guy do you know anything about carbon credits or know anyone who knows anything about carbon credits on chain? And I was like, well, (laughs) turns out that I do. Um, And that's, you know, and I've known Dana and Lini for over a decade. And so that's sort of how we got together to work on this project.
0: That's so fun. Dana, could you share a little bit, maybe a little bit about your background too, and maybe some of your personal journey before you got to Flow Carbon as well?
2: Sure. So I am a lawyer by training. I actually focused on national security law. I worked at uh, the court that oversees our foreign intelligence gathering, um, which means that I I, um, have spent a fair bit of time uh, in a space where technology was being utilized and the legal um, and regulatory uh, questions about the use of new technology were... um, were uh, I would say evolving together with the use of the technology. That was something that we see in in all cases across the board in uh, national security and intelligence. Um, and it was kind of really exciting for me because I was I was um, engaging with these technologies, but on the legal side. Um, and I then started a software company together with Lini, who Phil just referenced, um, who's our COO, um, and. We started a AI-powered chatbot technology platform um, at at precisely a moment when privacy and communications laws were evolving to adjust to the reality of having AI-powered chatbots engaging with humans. And so again, it was a really fun and interesting place to be building a technology tool um, where the legal was evolving at the same time. Um, And so I think I kind of really like this um, like this sort of area. But anyway, we we worked on that um, that platform and sold it to a private equity fund in 2020 and then had the ability to get involved in environmental philanthropy together with some other folks that we knew, um, in particular on a specific project that was happening in South America. And the truth is that getting involved in environmental work from the philanthropic standpoint is certainly sort of rewarding, but also very disheartening because you see the reliance on philanthropy capital to effectuate these projects. And you see how utterly insufficient it is, which is why we have these alarming stats like um, the famous one, which is one football field worth of old growth rainforest is being destroyed um, every six seconds. So we are slashing and burning our rainforests and other critical ecosystems because we don't have the capital in place to preserve it. And so... Getting involved in that project uh, led to a deep dive into what the really only other alternative source of funding could be for these essential projects. What, these projects are super essential because, like I said earlier, they can provide up to 30% of solution to climate change. They also, preserving ecosystems, That so, so there are most scalable and cost-effective carbon sinks. Um, and so as we think about global decarbonization, it makes no sense to allow the continual destruction of our natural carbon sinks that's, you know, just perpetuating the problem. It's, it's a major source of emissions. Um, and so the only other economically viable mechanism for dealing with this problem was the voluntary carbon market, which I discovered at that, at that time. Became really fascinated by this market and just spoke to as many people as I could about it, did my own deep dive. Phil described his rabbit hole on carbon credits. I did a similar, I, I went down a, a similar rabbit hole on the market overall because I was really enamored with what it, it could effectuate and the potential it had um, from an impact standpoint um, and was curious as to why it wasn't, you know, why, why did I just discover it in 2020? Why isn't this a market that is more visible, bigger, growing more rapidly as, you know, as we all our collective conscious around decarbonization and climate change is elevated, why isn't this market, which is such an elegant solution, um, similarly, um, similarly growing? And the answer is it has a, a couple of challenges that are solvable. And so we incepted Flow Carbon to solve some of those challenges.
3: I think we all come at this from the, the how do you scale this market and how do you create efficiencies in the market in order to scale. It? And part of the big problem is there just hasn't been market like traditional market efficiencies. And prior to getting involved in blockchain, I was I was a student of financial markets and specifically of arbitrage. And to me, that is what's absolutely missing in this market and why you know we need to create technological solutions that allow for that efficiency to come into place. One of the things that you know everyone talks about and has been talked about for you know years is that in order to get people to think about how they pollute. You have to actually put a price on pollution. And so you have to have that. And so in certain cap-and-trade schemes, you have that. But places where you don't have cap-and-trade schemes where um, you have just, you know... the corporates doing this voluntarily, they're doing it without a price. And so no one knows what the price of polluting is. And part of the problem in the current voluntary carbon market is price discovery is very difficult. There's lots of different kinds of carbon credits. They all have different prices and they all have incredibly wide spreads. And in financial markets, when you have a an asset that has wide spreads that usually doesn't last very long, right? It's this secret that only you know about and you exploit that secret for as long as possible, right? If I'm able to buy something at $10 and resell it to you at $12 and make a 20% spread on it, right? I'm going to do that all day long. And in fact, I'm going to keep doing that even as that spread compresses down to 10%, 5%, 2%, 1%, half a percent, but in the voluntary carbon market, that compression of spreads hasn't happened as rapidly as it does in other markets. It's sort of like there's gatekeepers and secrets that everyone has knowing, oh, I know the real information. I have true price discovery on my end, but the market buyers don't have as much price discovery. So in order to do that, you have to create, you have to remove that information asymmetry and create true price discovery. And the way you do that is by letting people who have that information, right, access the market in real time and in public with transparency and so. All of a sudden, you'll start seeing those spreads compress, and buyers and sellers are then able to meet at real-time pricing. And so you see that, like if you think about um, equities markets, right? The spreads in equities market are a penny wide at most, right? And that's it. And that's because the arbitrage that goes on to actually real-time price and price and all the information that's available on an equity, like Apple stock, is available to everybody and everyone plays in that market with, tool, with financial tools that allow them to mitigate risk and take risk positions like options, like futures, contracts, etc. You can do those in the carbon market. None of that exists. There's no ability currently to short the market. There are very Mm -hmm. limited futures products that have very low volume. There are no options. There are no sort of derivative products. And the ability to even trade on these products themselves is kept to a very limited group of people. And so opening up access to that will allow for price discovery and efficiency to take place so that if someone then wants to pollute, it's very clear to them, okay, pollution is going to cost me X dollars a ton of pollution, not, well, maybe I can get away with it being $2 a ton if I do it this way versus $9 a ton if I do it that way, right? That sort of is what ultimately has to end. In po- not all of that is a function of markets being efficient. Some of that is a function of the entire industry or industry subgroups getting together and saying, these are the kind of carbon credits that you can use to actually abate your pollution.
1: And at a kind of empirical level, the impact is that when the cost of pollution isn't accurately reflected, we're destroying the natural world that we need to survive to power these supply chains, to keep society rolling. And so there's kind of like this intrinsic cost or intrinsic value of preserving nature or destroying nature that we're also trying to adjust against. Um, th- I think there's a lot of different avenues we could explore down here, but I'd love to shift and talk about, you know, Flow Carbon's particular solution and the architecture you guys have chosen. I obviously found out about you while I was working at Tucan and was really Interested in this idea of a two-way bridge, and looking at the considerations you've made specifically for the corporate market, but also recognizing what the Web3 um, kind of builder space and DAO space needs to make this, um, you know, a product that works for them. Can you guys open up? Yeah, what your solution is, how it works, and some of the key decisions you've made to facilitate this market to to emerge and to scale.
2: Sure. What a, what a two-way bridge means is. Uh, that basically you you can take carbon credits which exist off chain, you can create tokens that are backed by these carbon credits, which allow the basically legal interest in the carbon credit to trade freely, much more freely than they can, uh, but you know without tokenization. Um, but that the credits themselves are aggregated in a you know some some sort of custodial account that we maintain, um, and it allows for a lot of the innovation that Phil just described. A, for for starters, most obviously, it allows for um, transacting through tokens, which happens on exchanges and DEXs where there's clear price transparency. So everybody's accessing these units at the same time at the same price. Um, They can also do so in any amount. So you can bring in the whole retail market, um, SMB market, mid-level corporate market who um, buy in smaller amounts. And so they have a really difficult time navigating the off-chain broker, uh, broker-led market because uh, in addition to the lack of price transparency and, and discoverability, um, they can't buy in small amounts. So like any of us on this call, we cannot custody a carbon credit because we don't have the right registry accounts to do so. And also because if we wanna buy to offset a flight, you can't really buy one credit. No, no broker is gonna sell you one or two or 10 or a hundred credits. So um, so we believe that taking these units and creating tokens backed by them, um, which are really like co- basically tokenized versions of, of an asset or a commodity, Um, makes a lot of sense. The two-way bridge component means that if you're the token holder, you have every um, all the functionality that's associated with the underlying credit, which means at any time you can retire it, it is is live and unretired. So for those of you not familiar with the market, carbon credits are sold um, and they represent a right to retire the carbon credit and then claim the environmental benefit, also known as an offset, associated with that credit. And so- um, the, any token holder has the same right. They can retire the token at any time, which means that we will retire the underlying carbon credit and they can claim the associated offset or environmental benefit. They can also trade in the token for an actual carbon credit. That's that's sort of the, the notion of the two-way bridge, which means that if you're the token holder, you can bring it to us and actually take possession or custody of an underlying carbon credit. Um, and so that's really important for creating... Um, interoperability between the on and off chain carbon markets. It means that they they won't be um, functioning in uh, separately in separate universes from one another. Where and it means that some of the more speculative on chain activity can be tempered um, because you can have the entire off chain community um, of project developers and brokers and those who participate um, participating in the tokenized version. So that's what a two way bridge. So we we architected that for two reasons. One, because we thought that like we view this as making by far the most sense as an economic solution. And two, carbon credits right now, the way that they are issued is as off-chain assets. They are database entries and registries at, um, you know, market recognized standards that create carbon credits. Um, And there's four main ones. Um, And so, You have to bridge them on-chain, so that's the notion of bridging. And the two-way bridge means you can also take them back off-chain, which we think makes all of the sense in the world from an inefficient market standpoint. Phil, you want to add anything? Yeah,
3: just to go back to just the example of how this would work in a two-way bridge scenario, right? So if you have a carbon credit on-chain that's trading at $10, And a broker that's off chain that exists in the off chain market says, Oh, $10 is a great price for me to buy because I can sell them off chain at $12. They will buy them up on chain $10, $10 $10.50, $11, $11 $11.50, all the way up to $12 because they know that they can sell them and take them off chain to do that. Same thing on the other side, right? And the other side of the market works the same way. Is then if carbon credit on chain is trading at at $12 and a broker's like, well, that's only worth $10, right? They will bring them on chain, sell them at 12, sell them at 11, all the way down. And eventually you will, because you have multiple participants doing this, you will arrive at a fair market price for carbon credits.
2: Which I'll add, in addition to being a virtue in and of itself and very like super important for the market, it also is directly tied to our goal of enabling more projects to be financed. Because once you have a market for carbon credits that, um, enables price discovery. The, the number one challenge we hear from project developers, um, in, in association with their, the, the challenges they have getting financed is that they, they, there's no price discovery for the credits. And so that makes it super difficult to underwrite the projects and invest in new projects. If there's just a clear, transparent, efficient market for different kinds of carbon credits. And again, of course, for those sophisticated listeners, yes, there's many different kinds of carbon credits, and the market will have to um, find the right balance between standardization and fungibility on the one hand, and the unique characteristics of different kinds of carbon credits on the other. I think this is a market-wide conversation that's happening, and you know, market. I think different market mechanisms, including tokenization, will enable those forces to come together to to sort of solve that equilibrium. But the number one challenge they have is having any kind of pri- price discoverability and transparency such that they can finance new projects. Um, and so that's it's directly in service of seeing more projects done.
3: Which I guess is actually a really good segue into sort of what the other stuff we're working on, which is project finance and how do we direct capital directly back to projects, right? The spot market is really about secondary trading, mostly about secondary trading and the selling of credits once they're created. but we are actually hyper-focused as well on how do we drive money directly to projects that need money on the ground in order to get started or to continue doing the work they're doing. Um, And to that end, we've actually brought the first forward contract on-chain. A little over six weeks ago, um, we launched our uh, first Centrifuge pool. So Centrifuge is a protocol for bringing real-world assets, mostly in the form of contracts, um, on-chain and creating structured products on them. And so we actually launched our pool. Um, It's initial, um, our primary first pool that we did was built around a single project um, that's in Paraguay, it's in the Chaco region. And Chaco is one of the largest carbon sinks in the world. It ranks as one of the most deforested um, forested forest areas in the world as well. And it was actually, I think uh, Sir David Attenborough said that it's one of the last greatest wilderness areas in the world. And so this is the first issuance of credits from this project. And so we bought those credits forward. So we basically bought them um, at a discount to what we perceived spot prices would be when we bought them. And then we then put them into the centrifuge pool. And then we created two assets on top of that. So two tranches of investment. The senior or the drop token um, is a pay, gets paid a fixed rate of return. You can think of it as if it was a bond or debt. It gets paid just straight a fixed rate of return. The junior, on the other hand, or the TIN token, um, actually earns a variable rate of return. And that means that if the project, so if you go out and sell this in the market and we sell it at a, at a premium or we get more than we paid for it and more than that uh, senior rate of return was, the Tin Token can do incredibly well. It can have ROIs that are very, very high. On the other hand, if the project doesn't do as well and the market doesn't do as well, that actually can be impaired. Your capital can be impaired. And the junior tranche takes the first losses. So it has that equity-like component. And then the senior tranche always gets the first thing. And the reason that we're doing this on in an on-chain vehicle is twofold. One, we think that the entire value chain for carbon credits is going to move on-chain. And so from the creation of credits ultimately to this trading of credits, and so doing the financing on chain makes a lot of sense because doing it with smart contracts then mean that this can all be auto-executing, right? The waterfall is fulfilled in, in this senior-junior is fulfilled by a smart contract. And so you can actually at times once eventually create the entire contract for the forward um, instrument on chain, have the credits when it... that. Um, when those credits are issued, they're delivered in the form of tokens, and the whole thing is automated without human involvement. It's all, all done by smart contracts. So we think that's awesome. Second, we actually think that this is an opportunity for Web3 to really make a difference and have a real impact in climate change. Because we think that there are Web3 treasuries, we think there are stable coins, we think there are DAOs, all sorts of Web3 projects that have capital that they can allocate. This is an amazing vehicle for allocating that capital and to actually allocate it in a way where the money is going directly to projects on the ground. And you hopefully will see a financial return. Um, We actually think that you can see a potentially very big financial return or a fixed return depending on which um, pool you choose to invest in. And so we're really excited about the opportunity this presents for Web3 to come together and show the impact that it can actually have.
0: That's amazing. You know, and just just sort of building on that, you know, Phil, on so on the supply and the demand side, on both sides, maybe could you speak a little bit, and both of you guys speak, you know, a little bit more about the project developers that sort of are coming on. You know, who these pro- what kinds of projects these are. Uh, you know, what kind of work they're doing on the ground, and sort of what's surfacing these credits, and then maybe also you could touch a little bit too. I know you touched upon this on the Web3 community side, but like what kind of demand is coming in? What are some of the motivations there? What are they looking for? What, what kinds of capital is flowing into these projects, you know, and to these pools?
2: I'll start by saying that um, I've read a lot of different reports on this, but um, something like $700 billion mm-hmm. worth of capital needs to flow into nature-based solutions in order to um, help us achieve the one and a half degree pathway. Um from the Paris Agreement, and
3: uh, and if you take and if you go beyond nature-based, it's four trillion dollars.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but even just for nature, so um, uh, something like eight hundred billion dollars of capital, and yet it is very difficult to deploy that capital because these projects, which are so incredibly compelling from an impact standpoint, are nonetheless um, difficult to underwrite because they're often in the developing world. They often are subject to a lot of. Local, on the ground, that uh, bes- sort of unique considerations um, and fluctuations, there's climate risk associated with them, fires, et cetera. There's a lot of risk involved in these projects. Um, and so a lot of the capital that's, um, that is intended to flow into these kinds of solutions are only chasing the uh, projects that are sort of the lowest risk profile um, and the largest volume right? Because that's where you're, the ROI um, is something that most traditional investors are comfortable with. However, much of the impact that we need to see on the ground in the form of projects comes from smaller projects. Um, I won't even say higher risk projects. It's more projects that um, can't easily uh, be bucketed into these risk parameters because the data is less available and um, or the project is smaller. And so the ROI potential is much smaller. And so what what we have is essentially um, an opportunity for smaller project developers, which uh, we think represents a tremendous amount of climate action coupled with real biodiversity and uh, local benefits. Like these are are some of the most impactful projects uh, available to be done. It's an opportunity for them to get financing because it's a it's a it's sort of platformized. So it gives them access to this financing solution, which has been totally validated. Because just from the sort of um, the the initial pool that we did with Centrifuge, we've been inundated by project developers, small, large, but we're really excited about the smaller ones um, who are interested in utilizing this solution. They they don't have the ability to go do a bilateral fundraising process. Um, and even if they did, they wouldn't necessarily fit into the return profiles that traditional investors want to see, and so they don't have solutions, and so they either don't do the projects um, or they strike local whatever deals they have available to them, which are often unfavorable, and limit the impact that the project could have, um, and certainly the capital going back to the project developers. so um, it's been really cool to see.
0: Just maybe share a little bit, just maybe some specific examples of kinds of small projects that, you know, sort of when you're talking about small projects, like what kinds of projects are those? What are we seeing? What, you know, what kind of work are they doing on the ground?
2: Yeah, it could be anything. There's a a lot of smaller um, blue carbon projects, mangrove preservation and restoration projects. There's um, some newer methodologies like biochar projects. There are much smaller conservation projects, so avoided deforestation projects that are just on the smaller side. So investors tend to like avoided deforestation projects because they um, they have immediate yield. At least once you get the project certified, again it can take it, it takes a while, but once you have the project certified and issuance is coming, they if you have a large land area. Um, it's higher volume. So the, you know, the majority of the credits in the market right now are, come from renewable energy projects or avoided deforestation projects. But by by contrast, if you have a small conservation project where the threat is, is real, so the additionality is there, but you need to pay a lot upfront to secure the land asset in whatever way you're doing it, and then to do pre-feasibility, feasibility studies, get the carbon development done, get certification, um, this is a lot of capital. And so it's even smaller avoided deforestation projects.
1: I'd love to go into like, you know, when you guys are going to launch, it seems as though you were ready a while ago. You raised around a really significant round led by 16Z. Um, you've mm-hmm. got what, $38 million of pre-purchases for GNT, which is very high quality carbon credit, but you haven't gone live yet. What's What's going on behind the scenes and what can we expect?
2: Yeah, so I think... The what's been phenomenal and exciting to see is that the voluntary carbon market, which is a self-governing market, it's it basically there's a number of really important institutions within the market that kind of drive policy for this market, but it's not a, a market that's subject to um, any kind of regulation and so or legislation and so. Um, it's a self-governing market. They have leaned into tokenization in a real way, and so a bunch of these critical institutions have processes going right now where they are formally, in accordance with their, you know, formal decision-making processes, figuring out um, the the specific frameworks and rules under which they will uh, like enable the tokenization of their units. And so, three of the main. Three of the four main carbon crediting standards, Vera, Gold Standard, and American Carbon Registry, all have public or private consultations going on right now that Flow Carbon is heavily, heavily involved in. Um, AIDA, which is the sort of main, uh, I would say, policy it's it's a trade association, but it's a, a sort of main policy driving institution in, in the market um, has a drafting group on tokenization. And so it's super exciting to see basically an entire market coming together to think about how to most effectively leverage blockchain tech for tokenization and beyond. Um, there's other utilizations of blockchain tech to the market as well. Um, and so right now, flow carbon, yeah, from a tech and legal standpoint, we've been you know ready to go for a long time to mint tokens and deliver them that are backed by carbon credits, but to engage directly with the standards that create these carbon credits um, and other super important bodies like AIDA, where we're we're a member and we're on we're on the group that's working on this, um, is I think a, a huge opportunity. It's it's a it's a massive opportunity. I think for the the movement to tackle climate change, like for the broader decarbonization and climate change community. And so we're super excited to be leaning into those processes and to be a resource to a resource and, and a sort of, you know, participant with these market institutions as they think this through. And so um, that that's what we're focused on right now um, and are super excited that the market is where it is right now.
3: And, yeah, and while the GNT token may not have launched yet, we did launch the, the first centrifuge pool. And that's you know mm-hmm. in some ways way more exciting. The tokenization of carbon credits is necessary infrastructure and there's a lot of people working on how to build that correctly and, and there's a lot of mind share going into that. But we're really excited that we can actually help money go directly to projects and hopefully scale that relatively quickly into tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, I think I'd be curious to look a little bit more towards the future of like what's possible once these pools are live and large capitals flowing into it, what can be built upon it, what are the use cases. But before we do that, I just want to kind of understand your guys read on the sea change that's happening here, because it seemed like there was this universe of enthusiasm around Kalima Dao and Toucan, a bunch of credits flowed on chain, one of every four credits over, you know, a certain time period was bridged via Toucan. And then Vera obviously came in with the public announcement in May and said, like, we're prohibiting the tokenization of retired credits. Um, What do you guys think is going on behind the scenes? Is it just that, yes, they're convinced that blockchain is a critical piece of technology to allow this to scale, but they just need to figure it out? Or do you actually feel like there's an undercurrent that's pushing back against this technology and we might see, you know, not wholesale adoption of, you know, blockchain as a space?
2: No, I think it's the former. Um, it's, pr- it's pretty clearly the former. I mean, even if you read the gold standard public consultation doc, um, it says like, we are basically just coming up with the rules under which we will enable tokenization. So I think basically this is a very collaborative market. It's a small market. The market itself, by the way, $2 billion this year, 300 million in 2018, tiny market that is poised for, really ha- has seen thus far, um, growth by orders of magnitude and is poised for like something like a 10 to 15x growth in the next like uh, decade. And so I think it makes total sense that on the cusp of this kind of growth, the market, again, a small community of people and institutions is coming together Mm. and saying like we are all together about to experience growth that could lead to tremendous climate impact. Let's make sure that the underlying um, frameworks through which some of this is happening. Meaning if it's happening on chain through tokens, let's like all align and make sure that all T's are crossed and all I's are dotted. This is a market where um, integrity matters a lot. We haven't talked about that. I talk about that on most talks that I do. This is... A, in a market where credibility and integrity is super important. And so I think any major shift, for example, if you're gonna to be tokenizing credits from this market and moving, trying to move the market on chain, it's gotta be done with the utmost integrity and, and you know, really taking into account credibility questions. And that means collaborating with the stakeholders in the market that, that you know are experts in this, that have sort of built the traditional legacy institutions that, that are addressing quality questions Right now, you can't do this in a way that or you sh- it shouldn't be done in a way that's disconnected, rather um, totally um, in collaboration with market institutions. And so I think that's what's happening now. The first stage of this was doing it separately, demonstrating the power, which um, which certainly the early efforts did, demonstrating the potential volume. Um, and now the second phase is doing it in collaboration with market stakeholders so that it's done um, you know, I I think as properly as possible.
3: Yeah. And if you think about what the standards actually are, they're not technologists, right? What we're proposing is a massive technology upgrade to the way that they issue and deal with credits. And so for them to get a grasp on what it is that we're talking about is just taking a little bit of time and it's healthy. It's good that they are actually digging in. And if you look at the public consultations and working groups especially from gold standard they are digging into the power of blockchain and the and the power of web3 in a way that is really remarkable. They, they really are digging in all the way down, looking at every possible way that this can be used, not just for <clears throat> the tokenization and trading of carbon credits, but beyond that, to scale the market, to set price floors, et cetera. They're thinking through all of these really complicated and interesting use cases and innovative ways of working in Web3. And so they're really digging in and trying to understand the full picture. And that's amazing. And so I'm actually really optimistic and excited that this is going to be that this we're gonna see this be one of the first industries and one of the first asset classes to fully move on chain and, and have an entire industry move there in that direction is pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, just I mean, just to build on that, when we were with uh we had Benoit from Vera over on the podcast and it just was very clear that like integrity to you know to your point, Dana, is really important and it's not a yeah. matter of like the technology, it's its doing so in a way that is like building trust. And, you know, like it just these components of just them wrapping their mind around it. So I, I think just to build on that, I feel like that's something that, John, you and I have been seeing too across our podcast is like, you know, there is openness and it's just a matter of like being in an integrity and doing this in a way that's like continues to build trust with the broader community and brings high quality assets online.
2: I think that um, for those who do have delved deeply into the carbon markets and the use of blockchain to this market, it becomes pretty clear that this is blockchain and tokenization are directly beneficial tools for the specific challenges in this market. Meaning there's almost like, you know, we talk about product market fit, there's solution market fit to this particular market and its specific challenges with this technology for a whole variety of reasons, some of which we've, we've covered in this episode. Um, and so the, you know, that's, that's why it's so exciting. And that's, I think, why the, the industry is really taking up this question, because there have been challenges that have historically prevented the market from scaling. We don't have the luxury of time figuring it out. This is a solution that can um, address these challenges and do so really quickly. Um, so...
1: Mm, well said. And, yeah. and the, just the remainder of our time here, I'm curious, Phil, like cast vision in terms of where this goes in a best case scenario for you guys, best case scenario for the market, for the planet. Like what happens here over the next six, 12, 18 months? And what kind of things will be possible once the likes of Flow Carbon are out into the
3: wild? Yeah, so I think one, I, I'm very hopeful that in the next six months we will see live tokenized markets and we'll be, there'll be live trading in tokenized markets. There'll be more access to the markets. And what that will then unlock is the ability to do more project finance because it will become more and more automated in order to basically do what we're doing with the centrifuge pools where those credits come in after they're issued and there's a market to sell them into immediately. And that will enable more efficient use of capital because you won't necessarily have to hold on to prepayment dollars which we didn't really talk about, but part of the structure that we do in the centrifuge pool is we pay the product developers most of the money up front, but not all of it. And then when they deliver, they get paid the rest. And so that money in the current iterations of these pools is actually sitting in cash, which actually makes the senior investment even more secure because there's actually cash sitting there for them to, if the credits, say, don't deliver. right? They don't Mm -hmm. actually lose all of their money. Um, But over time, as this process gets better and we can build in reputation scoring and have more people plugging into the system, um, you can actually more efficiently deploy capital because when there's a liquid market, you don't necessarily need to keep that cash there um, in order to do it. But what I think is going to happen is there's going to be V2 and V3 sort of of the centrifuge pools. And so some of what that looks like is additional tranches. So having the ability not just to have a a senior and a junior, but to have also mezzanine-like tranches where it's a combination where you get a little bit of upside um, for in exchange for different um, interest rates. And so there's the ability to do that. There's also the ability for us to actually turn these into essentially carbon annuities, which would mean that instead of the waterfalls when they're distributed back into the pools and you get cash paid back to the investors, investors can opt to have credits given back to them instead of cash. And so this would allow for a corporate, for example, to invest in a pool wow. and then get a stream of credits that are paid back to them over so time. Sweet. Right. And so th- the same thing for any investor who maybe doesn't necessarily says, okay, great, I want to invest in carbon credits, I want to do this, this is a great investment, but I actually want to keep the credits and hold on to them or I want to use them for offsetting. So that's a really nice thing. And then there is all of the interoperability with other refi protocols that are being built. And so on the... Um, supply side there are protocols like ivy and green trade which are getting into the project origination game so what they're doing is um, this is similar to also what bit green is doing where they're going out and talking directly to projects and t- and people who have land concessions or indigenous communities and saying we can help you get a carbon project started and then they can actually bring that carbon project to these pools in order to get financing And then on the other side of that, once these pools are up and running, you have the ability to do something like what what Solid World is doing. Solid World is proposing to have liquid um, forward markets, right? So where you could actually liquidly publicly trade forward contracts. And so what that would allow is for once you know these pools are put together, they go and invest directly in projects. And then if there's a a good price return, they can be sold. And again, remember there's this like liquidity premium that you get in the market. So liquid things that have generally do trade at a higher, a slightly higher value. So you can actually make a return by taking these illiquid forward contracts, selling them into these pools, making them liquid, taking that capital and immediately redeploying it back into new projects on the ground. And so then what that that even further allows you to do is to package and repackage and tranche these into financial securities over and over again and the reason why that's important right and I know that people sometimes have a little PTSD about repackaging and packaging securities from the financial of uh, the mortgage crisis but when it's done on chain right you actually don't have all the problems of illiquidity and lack of transparency as to where those investments go and so you actually that is if we're going to actually move 4 trillion dollars into climate solutions, you absolutely need to massively financialize these things. Bam.
1: Love it. Thank you, guys. It's so powerful. I can't wait to see the six months ahead. We've got decades to come. For those who've listened and tuned in and want to get involved with what you're doing, what's the call to action? What can people do to get involved in the work? Um, Dana, I'll leave that with you.
2: So I think it's twofold. One is any accredited investor that wants to have real impact, can, you know, go on Centrifuge and, and see what we're doing there um, and get in touch with us there. Secondly, is you have a very sophisticated audience, as I've said earlier, and to the extent there's um, folks listening who have thoughts on tokenization um, and have a point of view on blockchain and how it can contribute to this market that's informed and they they're able to articulate it, they should certainly submit to the public consultations that Vera is running, that Gold Standard is running. Beers is going through November 2nd, gold Standard is going through uh, October 28th, and they should definitely get involved and make their voice known because, um, you know, I, I think the more voices, again, you know, educated, well-informed voices that um, can articulate both the benefits, raise the important questions and be part of the conversation, um, the more, you know, the, the, the overall conversation is advanced.
3: And beyond just individual investors who are accredited in the United States or not accredited outside the United States can participate in centrifuge pools. One of the one of many reasons that we decided to work with centrifuge is those um, vehicles are actually set up to work really well and easily with totally decentralized organizations. So DAOs such as MakerDAO have been able to invest in centrifuge pools in the past. So if you're a Web3 treasury or Web3 community that or a DAO that wants to have a real climate impact, we would love to have you be involved in sort of the expansion of these pools that we're doing in the next quarter
1: there we go thanks guys it's been such a pleasure Phil I know you gotta talk go smash it homie like you always do Dana it's been an absolute pleasure getting to hang out as always and yeah really grateful to have you guys on and can't wait to see what comes over the next period of time and have a good rest of your day
3: thanks John thank you thanks, thanks for
2: having us